the Koi Gig Pod. But we're too quick to drop off 3v1. That's been a problem that we actually stopped against Scotland because Neve Fahey stepped in to stop Caroline Weir. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. And you're welcome back to Off The Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until 7. Time now for the Sunday Paper Review. We're delighted to be joined in studio by the Sunday World Sports writer Roy Curtis and the Virgin Media broadcaster Tommy Martin. Gents, how is the form? Hi, John. Very good, John. Good how are you? you? Good, good, to, see good you. to see you. And plenty to discuss between now and 3. And let's go through the papers. So the Sunday Independent to start. Uh, you can listen on News Talk across the country, but also watch us. You can watch us now as well on the digital and social channels for Periscope and Twitter, out off the ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. So, big game of hunters, Aussies, all blacks, and bucks, all beaten in a magical year for Irish rugby. Picture of Ross Byrne, a great kick in that 13 10 win over Australia last night in the Sunday Independent sports section. And shock as FIFA chief slams Qatar's critics. Infantino claims workers are better off being exploited, is the headline. Uh, the big World Cup kickoff cloud hangs over the greatest show on earth. Picture of Lionel Messi and Harry Kane in the Sunday Independent. The Sunday Times, we have a picture there of Ireland's successful players. Winnie Ugly, Ireland sign off on autumn campaign with narrow win over Wallabies. And Wayne Rooney, my World Cup woe. A diary from Wayne Rooney, very entertaining as always. We have the back of the Irish Daily Mail. Ross to the rescue, Ireland struggle without Sexton, but Crowley copes well on first start before Byrne sees off dogged Aussies with brilliant leg kick. Kenny needs to end the rough year on a positive note. Uh, Murphy and Malloy, the tale of two Donegal icons and World Cup joy utterly defiled by FIFA's sick pantomime. We have the Observer, Qatar 2022. Uh, terrible situation, dire shows concern for workers' plight. Rudiger's warning, never count Germany out, anything can happen. Infantino's toxic spin, with his gay migrant African call to arms, corporate Spartacus is in charge of the show and roaring back a picture of England's uh, players after their draw against New Zealand in the rugby, obviously the Observer with a, a, a UK bent in terms of its coverage. At the Sunday World, we have Iran for the Hills, uh, Devils in the detail as a cross Chris close to ending Manchester standoff with move. Ireland beat the Aussies and World Cup kickoff. Don't miss the big preview inside. John Aldridge, Paul McGrath, Roy and uh, Kevin Palmer and John Rennan giving their verdicts on Qatar, the Sunday World. And Spillane, Ulster plays beautiful GAA game. We have the uh, Sunday Business Post, Matt Cooper's column on the back page, an own goal, the very public trials and tribulations of Cristiano Ronaldo and sponsorship, why the big deal on the World Cup. We have the back of the sun, which has burn after leading. Roz gives Oz the boot. A Malta versus Ireland, life's a pitch. Kenny hopes the grass is greener and world is in dire need of a hero on the World Cup. We have the Sunday Mirror, Chelsea pensioner. Don't tell me Todd Bailey's going to get Ronaldo to Chelsea. Uh, Blue's keen to sign Ron 37 if United cancel the contract uh, Burn supremacy Derek Foley writing that uh, unlikely hero Ross Byrne came to Ireland's rescue kicking a penalty three minutes from time to help Ireland beat Australia in Dublin Lions face war this is England over the one love armband and life is a pitch for Stephen and to finish the start on Sunday where Euro fighters Coleman wants the Republic of Ireland to take on the challenges big qualifying battle will bring. England won FIFA nil on that armband and Joe Allen battling injury and rugby union Ireland 13, Australia 10. So I think maybe the best place we'll get the politics out of the way before we can talk about the football and there's so much to talk about in terms of the writing and obviously all the good writers, Roy and the Gianni Infantino stuff I suppose is maybe the best place to start the, the, the front story in the Sunday Independent today. 
Yeah, I mean, you hear political satirists talking about how they've been rendered obsolete in the post-Trump age. You know, the antics of Trump and Boris and Putin and Liz Truss are simply beyond parody. Um, and when reality seems like a wild, absurdist skit, uh, how is it possible to, to further lampoon? When I, um, when I first heard Infantino's interview yesterday, I honestly thought uh, Connor's sketches or Callan's kicks were doing a special... Or Mario. World, or Mario, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, we're doing, we're doing a World Cup special. I mean, you, had a, a, you have a tone-deaf autocrat talking down to people, the arrogance, the cynicism, the false equivalence, the ego, um, the sheer indifference and badness of his monologue, I think it defies belief uh, in, in so many ways. As I said to Tommy outside, this was FIFA opening a window and exposing the rotten core. I mean, this is who they are. I think Jason Burke, Jason Burt um, in, the, in the Sindo today, I think is a really good piece on it, which starts... On the eve of a World Cup built literally and metaphorically on sand, Gianni Infantino had his Trumpian moment. Given the FIFA president spoke for 56 minutes before chiding his inquisitors, it was more than a moment, but it was the day he went full Donald Trump, never mind Sepp Blatter. He has been here of, of, before, of course. While Infantino was trying to credit FIFA and the World Cup for driving change in Qatar, it should be remembered he said the tournament had transformed, quote, the perception that the world has about Russia as he goofily accepted the Order of Fellowship Medal from Vladimir Putin in 2018. FIFA are just an irredeemable, an irredeemably awful group of people, aren't they? And wasn't he the guy, Tommy, that was meant to be the reformer? He was the outsider. He's the UEFA man um, in the kind of an executive role that fell into the position almost by accident after Platini was meant to get it and had to go. Yeah, I was going to say there, you know, his his, uh, speech yesterday tarnished the good name of uh, FIFA. uh, (laughs) But uh, obviously that was that was lost a long time ago. That was that was like the greatest trick the devil ever pulled kind of job. This guy's associate Infantino. You know, using that moment of Blatter's fall and the fall of that whole you know coterie of uh, FIFA executive uh, committee members coming in and portraying himself as the new broom cleaning up FIFA, and when you see what, what, what when you see something like this, if you had any doubt, given what we've seen over the over the years leading up to this tournament, that it is you know meet the new boss, same as the old boss. But it's doubled down. He's doubled down on the whole thing of Qatar by the tone of it, you know, the hour long speech. The tone of it, uh, it's that it's what Roy there talks about with the, you know, in reference to the the, the Trump stuff and the, the, you know, the Johnson stuff. And and sometimes it can be too easy to say if you see something that's, you know, clearly detached from reality, oh, it's Donald Trump stuff. But it's exactly that creation of alternative reality. What a battery. Self-serving alternative reality and, and, Complete lack of um, of humility and, uh, and and any sense of and it just it just gives you a real picture of uh, these people are just surrounded by by yes men and um, you know this sense of entitlement um, you know the the sheer crassness of somebody that the, the penny hasn't dropped in and it, it actually makes you feel God you know the amount of stuff that's been written about. Um, but why this World Cup is is bad and in, in, in terms of like inclusion and human rights and all that stuff that he would come out with that line yesterday, you know that today I feel Qatari, today I feel Arabic, today I feel African, today I feel gay, today I feel disabled, today I feel like a migrant worker, and tally it into the fact that he was discriminated because he moved to Switzerland as a child uh, and and was bullied because he had red hair and freckles, but you know what I did, I you know pick myself up by the bootstraps and look at me now. And it's like he's saying to everybody whose, whose rights have been, 
who've been who've been sullied, everybody who's been maltreated, everybody who's died on those projects, everybody who's who has been persecuted for their sexuality or their gender, that like he's basically saying to them, suck it up, folks, get on with it and be like me, be like Gianni Infantino and and, and sort yourself out. Because, you know, I was like you, I was bullied and I was mistreated. I was discriminated against, you know, and I'm not complaining. Like, it's just the the, the sheer uh, crass, like, crassness of it is there's great pieces. I mean, I think Ollie Holt's piece in the mail, just to come back to the papers, you know, really, really, really pulls it together. I think it's obviously a piece that he'd, he'd written with regard to his take on, on, on the World Cup and, the, and, and FIFA's role in it. And that, <laughs> that stuff yesterday just gave him, like, cracking opening, op- opening for, the, for the piece, you know, and, 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 uh, and you know, an, an angle to just, just hammer home what he was trying to say. So, um, you know, he's, he's, just, he's just gone, you know, today, he's, today I feel angry. Today I feel as if the World Cup that begins... Uh, today has been hijacked by charlatans, narcissists and bad actors. Today I feel that the planet's biggest sporting event has had its romance stripped away step by step. Today I feel Gianni Infantino, the FIFA president, needs to get a new speechwriter. And he goes on and ends with saying, today I feel as if he's killing the World Cup. And maybe that's something we'll get on to when we're talking about you know, the actual football starts today. Can the football save the World Cup? Uh, and also in that piece I feel angry I feel angry that the World Cup has been defiled in this way by these people who betrayed football I hope that the players provide the same joint entertainment they always provide and most of all I hope that the sick pantomime playing out in Doha will help save football from ever travelling down this road again but Gianni Infantino uh, who will um, have his own view on, on everything that's been said about him um, is going to be elected unopposed and all the Europeans are going to vote for him the, the, the Germans will abstain but all of these nations in Europe are going to vote for this guy and for and to be the new FIFA president for the next few years again Barney Rene did a brilliant piece in The Observer really though in between the poll quotes and killer lines and Fantino's performance was something far more disturbing this was the sound of a man who seems not just tired and angry but oddly hollowed out who spent so long residing close to death and to corruption by others that it's begun to rot him from the inside like a dead fish and also in the piece Infantino announced that at one point he feels 200% in control of this World Cup which sounds like the kind of thing someone might say just as their World Cup rears up and gallops off into a creek not least when that World Cup is already reeling from sponsor slapdown, shifting dates and constant noises off. I think it's a good thing that the World Cup has been held in the Arab world but why not Morocco, Egypt, Algeria countries with a football tradition there's the whole stench of corruption about the way this was awarded to Qatar there's the fact that it's the size of Dublin um, it's a state project. They've got 200 years of natural gas. Is there anything that was a, a argument for energy independence? This is it. Uh, uh, and the, the and off the back of the deaths of 6,000 people. It's uh, And the, the disconnect between that and what the World Cup, uh, you've been to World Cups, Roy, should represent, and I've been to Russia before, obviously the, the Kremlin went on their very, very evil path, even though they'd invaded Crimea, Crimea. But just to see what the World Cup should be about, which is about the joy of humanity, the joy, and I know you wrote about this in the Examiner during the week as well, about the working man, Tommy, uh, about the just the, the joy and the colour of football and life and uh, uh, what we all have, I suppose, the inner child within us juxtaposed with this the World Cup is so precious to so many people we can map our early years in life our coming of age through World Cup tournaments I vaguely remember as a five or six year old kid the 74 final I remember the ticker tape and being allowed to stay up late in Argenti- for Argentina in 78 and then 82 was the one as a young teenager all our gang fell in love with this beautiful Brazilian team, the team of Socrates and Falcao, Zico and Adir. And the devastation when they lost to Italy actually really, really hit home. Paolo Rossi's hat trick. You felt that something dear to you had gone. 
then you advance to when we got involved and even if you take Euro 88 moving into Italia 90 to be there it was this age of Irish innocence it was almost a statement of Ireland saying we've come of age on the international stage that we're somebody that that sort of traditional insecurity as a nation that we carried we were asserting ourselves as as real people if you like real international members of the community on and on through World Cups I've been to four or five of them and there's something you look forward to from months ahead you know it's going to be a festival a coming together it's the best of humanity even if FIFA are the worst of same but this time again I was talking to Tommy outside I, I would ordinarily have devoured eight pullouts by this stage on the teams I've hardly even considered the matches which is a truly terrible implication of all the background noise that's gone on all this I mean the notion that six and a half thousand people have lost their lives potentially and FIFA can sort of blithely say no it's three that's who these people are um, I thought it interesting to find that uh, Infantino actually lives in Qatar now He's made his home there and he was addressing an Arab audience yesterday. Somebody's actually texted in that you guys are missing the point. Infantino's speech wasn't for the Western press. It was for the Arab world, says Colin. Yeah, I think very much so. I think it was two fingers to Europe. His power base is in that part of the world. Um, He's only concerned with the FIFA brand and they really do believe themselves. There is also, you know, we talk about the Trump delusion and he believes a lot of the nonsense that he spouts. I think FIFA are so divorced from reality, they're in such a sheltered ivory tower that most of the stuff they come out with is not just propaganda, it's what they actually truly believe. And that's the most horrifying thing of all. I think like uh, Roy said there uh, a few moments ago that like FIFA is irredeemable. Like If you look at the, the, the Netflix documentary um, FIFA Uncovered, which kind of tells the story of how, how we got to this point, like it is, it's completely, you know, ir- irredeemable, irreformable. Structurally, there is no way that you c- it do- doesn't seem to me to be any way that you could possibly reform it because of the fact that, it, you know, it's uh, like every, vo- every, every, every country has, has one vote. So essentially it, it, it becomes, um, you know, someone like Infantino runs uh, unale- um, unopposed because he is able to ensure, much as we had in this country with our own football association and much as uh, Blatter, um, the way he ran his show, is that he is the conduit uh, for, for influence, for, for, uh, for money in terms of development, money go around the world. Obviously, the, the problem with what happened in the, the Blatter days was, was that money was being siphoned into personal, uh, personal uh, bank accounts of various power brokers in different parts of the world. Um, so the idea is there, is there any devil's argu- advocate argument about FIFA in terms of the fact that they're making billions out of these tournaments and they're developing the game around the world and, they're, and a lot of money is going into developing the game in places like Africa and Asia that wouldn't have had a strong footprint in soccer fifty years ago, for example. I think there is like I think if you you know that that that's the you know if you if you look at the history of FIFA that it was a sort of and it uh, brought the World Cup to South Africa. Yeah, it it, it was a sort of a, brought it to Japan and South Korea because uh, it was a European and South American tournament for. Yeah, well, up until 1974, when Joe Havelange became uh, he elbowed out Sir Stanley Rouse, uh, it had been basically like a, like a golf club committee, you know, of sort of few old duffers who sat there and passed the World Cup around. No commercialization, no sort of. Um, you know that sense that we now have of of uh, it being a vast money making machine. Uh, Havelange came in and realised this thing is bigger than these guys realised. He brought in Blatter, who was able to bring the sponsors in. Uh, Adi- Horst Dassler was running Adidas at the time. He set up International Sports and Leisure, which basically uh, started marketing the tournament, 
uh, and was basically pay, paying kickbacks into directly to Havelange, uh, which was the beginning of the corruption, the the sort of structure of corruption that that that, that toppled in 2015 with the FBI, FBI um, uh, investigation. So, but you know, at the same time. The reason how Havelange got elected was that he was the first to realize that actually, if I promise all the associations in, in Asia and Africa and in the developing world in the Caribbean that I'll, I'll look after them, I'll have development projects, improve their football, then they'll owe loyalty to me. And, you know, it's, it's clientelist politics in a different... Uh, well, it became a commercial organisation. It wasn't a commercial organisation until Havelange and Blatter the, get, get yeah, control of it. But is, once that happens, then money will always be yeah, we, subject to... We have a brilliant case study of it in our own country, where if you don't have accountability, if you don't have governance structures, then, you know, whatever the good you might do will be outweighed by the bad, by the, you know, the things that the, the money going places it shouldn't go, the favours being, being wrought for people, you know, people being uh, badly treated, uh, egos, certain people taking uh, too much power. If you don't, ha and you don't have that accountability, and organisations like FIFA and the IOC, they are supranational. They have no accountability. They exist in their own moral, moral realm. So while they're, they're, you know, as you say, like doubtless there's de there's projects probably all around the world that have come through FIFA money. I mean, what we're seeing today, where they're not answerable to anybody. And my the most depressing thing for me about it is I can see the World Cup now in 2030 going to Saudi Arabia, mm. Greece, and uh, Egypt. I I actually thought at one stage yesterday, given the badlands into which he was taking things that Infantino may announce Iran as as a host of the World Cup because they're they're fitting the template at the moment. I mean, some of the stuff he said yesterday and when when we talk about the audience he was speaking to, he, he did say we have to, we have told many, many lessons from some Europeans from the Western world. I think for what we Europeans have been doing for the last 3000 years, we should be apologizing for the next 3000 years before starting to give moral lessons to people. So essentially, he's absolving Qatar's whole worldview with that sentence that the misogyny, the homophobia, the brutal treatment of um, overseas workers, s slaves in effect, that that's all OK. The whataboutery, because Europe is not a haven of perfection, that somehow this stuff is justifiable. Um, I mean, the Russia, the Russian one is really interesting, the fact that that famous picture of himself sitting in the big armchairs with Putin at the last World Cup. Um, and, M and MBS on the other side. Exactly. I mean, you, you were really Saudi. In, in, in the company of sort of the cream of the cream of the worst of society, let's say. Mm. But there's a disconnect between that and what I saw on the ground in Russia, which was the celebration of humanity mm. and ordinary Russian people completely baffled and bemused in their... Uh, joy of seeing other people coming into their country for the first ever time. Yeah, just on the, uh, um, tie that point in, in a minute, just on the, the whole, um, that political aspect of it, it's important, it really is important because people, I'm sure people are texting in at this point to say that the World Cup has always been a mirror on geopolitics. Um, the brilliant uh, football historian David Goldblatt you know, was writing about this during the week that even, even as far back as 1930, uh, Uruguay, which was a, a tiny, then rich uh, and a post-colonial uh, nation, newly finding its confidence, used the success of its football team uh, and the, the hosting of the World Cup to project itself to the world. So where have we heard that before? Mussolini came along in 34 and projected something very different to the world. 
the, the uh, military junta in uh, Argentina in 1978 uh, is probably the closest parallel to what we're seeing. You know, a World Cup where that what you're talking about there with the the magical chi you know childlike wonder of football is used to, um, you know. The term wasn't invented at the time, but to sports, sports wash horrendous things happening. You know, Russia four years ago, and now here we are today. It's almost like every four years you can get nearly a, a snapshot of where the world is. We have these um, petrol states and the, the influence that they uh, um, are, are able to carry out around the world. And where it is now, and, and I think the world is, is, is sort of going this way, is, is a, a war of, of, of values. And, uh, you know, we see it now with, with Russia and you know, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, democracies, autocracies, human rights, uh, dictatorships, people are starting to sort of line up and take sides now. And I think that's part of what this is. Because people, because you can say, as, as, as Roy says, that, you know, oh, well, this is, this, this is a global thing, different cultures, we have to understand that people have different views. Like, these values, they're, they're literally in the FIFA statutes. They're literally part of what we believe as societies. So at some point, you have to draw the line and stand up for them. Like you have to actually say, it's all right, very well having a World Cup, but what about these values that you, that you, lit, like you literally have it? I think it's Article 3 of the FIFA uh, Constitution um, is, is, there, is the right to, to uh, inclusion. And um, so. The football is always only a part of a World Cup. It's the centerpiece, of course, but it's the way the world gathers together and, for want of a trite term, parties. There's a sense of innocent abroad, of people having this time of their life. I consider Ireland, it's it's the stuff Roy Keane in some ways railed against in in Ireland's 2012 performance in, in Poland, but it's it's an integral part. I, I went to Euro 88 as a, as a 19-year-old and meeting other people, the joy of seeing other cultures this this World Cup feels like, as as Tommy says, it's dividing people rather than bringing people together. There's a sense that nobody, even those travelling, are doing so with sort of hazard lights flashing all around them. You take one wrong act, you do one wrong thing and it can have serious implications. Not one wrong thing in terms of breaking Western laws, but in doing stuff that may be frowned upon over there that has been the essence of previous World Cups having a few beers and singing and dancing in the streets. And I know people will say alcohol shouldn't be a main player, but the reality is it is. I mean, I was out last night and you see the Ireland-Australia game and it's a social occasion as much as a sporting occasion. You see all Ireland weekends here. There are people coming together, doing the traditional thing they did last year, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, friends re-meeting. And World Cups are really about that. And if they just become corporate Goliath's making more money. I know you say that money then trickle down economics brings it back into other areas. But as a showcase for the game, this is just bloody awful. Okay. Uh, we have uh, the football as well. Um, 64 games between now and December the 18th. Um, interesting from uh, Eamon Sweeney in the uh, Sunday Independent, Tommy, just before we go to the break here. Um, if you object to the hypocrisy, hit the sponsors where it hurts. Uh, Think what about what you'll buy, eat, drink and wear while it's on and perhaps afterwards as well because the language of money is the only one big time sport understands. So it's where the sponsors can be hurt is what will actually influence change within FIFA. 
Yeah, that's. I mean, look, that's. We know that from scandals past that, like when the sponsors start 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 turning, that's when that's when change happens. And and I do wonder whether, um, you know, I think it's a good it's a good point to make. Like, what's the what what practically can you do? Um, I think we're all going to watch the World Cup because we all still have that. We all still have that childlike uh, wonder that we talk about. It is a magical thing. I think that's why. Like, we're after talking here for about twenty minutes, and we're obviously both. We're all. You know, quite sort of uh, exercised by it. Exercised by it, or and it, it sort of strikes at you in a, in a very deep way. And I think it does come back to the fact that we all fell in love with with World Cups when we were children, and we feel this. We we feel this as a as a deep insult to to that. You know, we feel that sort of that precious thing being you know being tarnished or being attacked or being used. I think is is you know that that what you're talking about there with, with in Russia. It's you know, been that used was, that as being used. It's been used as a pawn. Uh, yeah. The beautiful game is the global religion, and it's a bigger religion than any actual religion. Uh, but it's been it's the fact that it's almost been uh, seized and used. Like that, that is at the core of all the coverage you see and all the pieces and all the deeply felt. And sometimes it gets too. It feels like too much. You know, that's at the core of what everybody feels about it. You know, that's that just that sense of this is not right. This is, you know, and people were texting. I'm sure saying, "You guys are are deluded. You know, this is go. This is just the way of the world. This is the way it's going on. Get off your high horse." But I think it's it's something where you feel like a gut a gut thing. And I think that it it just feels like that. It feels like this World Cup is like you know when you've got a stomach bug and and you can feel the cramps coming and you can feel the discomfort and you know it's now we're at the we're at the projectile vomit stage of <laughs> of the coverage. At, well, at enjoy Qatar. I could order four o'clock. Um, <laughs> Five three one and six uh, lads. I love soccer. And decided not to watch this World Cup. People have a choice, and they don't have to watch it. Or news talk don't need to discuss it. Says Ted and Dungarvan. Well, I went through all the papers as did Roy and Tommy this morning. Ted and there's very little coverage of the actual football. There's very little like the, the, the amount of compelling narratives you have: Messi, mm. Mbappe, Neymar, Benzema's been ruled out over the last twenty four hours. England, Wales in the first World Cup since nineteen fifty eight. All of these things that will seep now into our discussion over the next week. But I suppose you can't ignore. The you know the political the journalistic aspect of uh, of discussing where it's being held because it is completely absurd as FIFA might disagree with that. But we're going to take a break. So much else to talk about with uh, Roy and Tommy between two and three. Ireland's win over Australia last night, and also the Republic of Ireland against Malta, and the small matter of Cristiano Ronaldo and Manchester United. We're back after this. The Sunday Papers on Off the Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. And you're welcome back to Off The Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until 7 today. We're continuing the Sunday Paper Review with Sunday World Sports writer Rod Curtis and the Virgin Media broadcaster Tommy Martin, as well as listening across the country on News Talk on your radio. You can watch us as well on the digital and social channels on YouTube, Facebook, the OTB Sports app and on Twitter. And... Uh, we're going to maybe talk about the football now uh, around the World Cup, which starts at four o'clock in Qatar, Qatar against Ecuador. And Wayne Rooney, I think most entertaining column, I suppose, I read today, Tommy, about the build up to all the World Cups and the three World Cups he was involved in. This is in the Sunday Times, 2006, 10 and 14. Yeah, you know, if the, the person who texted in saying don't talk about the football or don't watch the football, like, you know, uh, if, if you love something, if you lo- you know, if love's worth fighting for, you know, I think, the, I think the World Cup is worth fighting for. It's worth, uh, it's worth sort of, you know, celebrating. Uh, and, you know, there will be World Cups after this and maybe in, in places that are more suitable for it. The Rooney one is, you know, it's, it's uh, the, good th- the, the uh, positive of signing a big name columnist because you get a different uh, personal experience than maybe uh, some of the other coverage. And what it brings you really into is the sort of, you know, where did it all go wrong? 
uh, pieces. You know, the stuff that the stuff that you don't know does is it is it is it you know wise after the event? Oh, it was all about the training camp. It was all about this. Oh, you know, they brought in different uh, psychologists and things, and it didn't work. And this guy didn't get on with that guy, and, he, and the everything was wrong about the setup. You know the kind of things that come out afterwards. So he's obviously gone 2006, 2010 and 2014. He didn't have, his World Cup experience was, was universal, you know, across the board, pretty bad uh, in terms of the way it panned out. At the end of it, he comes up and he comes out of it like Rooney. He's a pretty pretty balanced guy as it comes out and as, as it turns out, uh, as you know, if you've read and, and listened to him, he kind of says, I just, you know, had that joy that I played in and scored in, in three World Cups. But what's really good is, is that, you know, he takes, he starts off in 06. You remember the, the famous metatarsal? Or it was him, the metatarsal, was it the metatarsal that he had? Uh, Beckham was the metatarsal, yeah. He, so he broke three metatarsals at Stamford Bridge in just that moment. Oh, F, I'm not making the squad and all the... The agony about it, the the oxygen chambers to to come through and and get fit again. Then he's back on the grass. He thinks he's going to make it. So United and England finally agreed to let an independent specialist decide if he was ready to to go in the squad. So they hired this guy who took him out on the grass, got him to do a bit, and then when they walked back in, just stamped on my foot. I was like, "What the?" He said, "How was that?" Uh, "Fine." He said, "Yep, you're fine. You're fit." Uh, you know, so there's good stuff there about Sven and. Uh, you know, Sven's approach um, and the bad and bad and stuff, how Rooney didn't think it was it was that bad a problem. Sven just he just felt Sven had gone with the wrong formation, didn't get couldn't get all his you know, all the midfielders in. We kinda of know about that. I thought the Fabio Capello one is, is very interesting. That 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 turned that seemed to be a complete disaster. And he kinda of pointed out Capello had never actually managed at a tournament before and everything just seemed to be, you know, he was uh, Talking about the the build up and it was it was tediously boring and uh, he he was saying that uh, he, he took not just his provisional squad this was to the Austria the camp before but players who knew they'd be on standby. I remember we had an eleven v eleven training game. The standby lads were steaming into tackles trying to show they deserved to be selected and to take someone out. <laughs> it's just like everything everything was just uh, you know recipe for disaster. It's, it's a reminder, Tommy, isn't it that for for many of us. English post-mortems after the World Cups are amongst the most yeah. entertaining aspects. The way the bubble of expectation bursts and then the response and Rooney really brings you inside yeah, those the days. The and the Entirely. where did it all go wrong. You know, we talk about um, during the club season, Capello, so Capello suddenly tried to change a lot of things. We were tested for body fat and he told Matthew Upson to lose four kilos. Matt Upson, a total athlete, all the players were talking about it. Matt has got into this team through his performances. You can't change his diet now. And during the club season, this nutritionist, they had this nutritionist, and the guy was phoning up lads at four o'clock on Saturdays, leaving messages like, why aren't you answering? It was strange. That guy didn't make it to the World Cup. But you just get the sense of just chaos. And, and the point he was making is that they, he started off saying that they were actually really good in qualifying and they were, they, they, like they were really fancied uh, at that stage and, and everything just seemed to go horribly wrong. And that was the one where Rooney coming off after the Algeria nil-nil game, he said, you know, he turned to the camera and says, nice to see your own fans booing you. And he, he like, he doesn't, he goes through that, and he says he just doesn't understand. He, was, he felt everybody was trying their best and he, and he can't understand why his the, the fans were booing the players. And that kind of just showed the real disconnect there was at that time between the fans uh, and that generation of England players, which, to, to be fair to Southgate, is something that, you know, he's credited with, with, with sorting out of it. We watch them every week. They are compelling what the narrative will be, what the journey will be, what the success will be, what the failure will be. It, it is only success if they win. Yeah. 
It's He's even talking about the, the bad chicken they had in Brazil <laughs> in 2014. You know, just the chicken just wasn't right. <laughs> it's, it's, um, 56 years of hurt now. Mm. Yeah, well, the tournament record in the last two tournaments ostensibly has been very good in terms of semi-final of the World Cup, final of the Euros. You then look at their pathway and maybe it's not quite as inspiring. Southgate has had a really rough few months and he's already been scapegoated in advance of the tournament and things will turn pretty nasty pretty quickly if anything goes wrong. Now, I do think they have a fairly straightforward passage to the knockout stages um, and you're looking potentially at a quarter-final against France who have been not emaciated but are losing a lot of key players. Obviously, Benzema, the latest one, um, I think Kante is a hugely important player for them and even while Pogba will always split opinions he was very very good in the last World Cup so that's three figures that they're losing they have a deep squad but it wouldn't stun me if England with a little momentum ground down France and beat them in that dour way that Southgate has them playing I think this is one of the ironies England have phenomenal attacking talent They've looked dodgy in defence and as a consequence of that, Southgate has played so many defensive midfielders that their chance to, to express themselves has been sort of lost. And I think the biggest conundrum of all for English supporters certainly is the Harry Maguire situation. I mean, he's almost certainly going to play his confidence. Where can it be at this stage after what's happened to him over the last six months? And the moment he makes a mistake, that's going to be magnified and highlighted over the coming Days, if something goes wrong against Iran tomorrow, he will suddenly become public enemy number one in England. And that's that's your guy that you're hoping to stitch together your whole defence. I think there's one good bet with England. I think Harry Kane is a really good bet to be top scorer in the tournament, given um, given the way England play, given his the way uh, he is playing at the moment. As given well, the way he's playing. playing and given the teams they're playing in the group stages. So we have the back of the uh, Sunday Independent and Eamon Sweeney's uh, piece on... I suppose that maybe the, the the biggest narrative the three club mates uh, Mbappe, Messi and Neymar uh, all from Paris Saint-Germain which is uh, bankrolled by the Qatari government uh, so three stars that can shine the brightest uh, it'll be surprising if two out of Brazil, Argentina and France don't make the final on December 18th that would give Messi or Neymar or Mbappe the chance to emulate Pele in 1970 Maradona in 1986 and Zidane in 1998 is this the most compelling storyline for the pair of you? I think Messi certainly Messi for me yeah. is there are very few sportsmen you encounter in your walk through a journalistic life that just constantly make your eyes boggle or your mind boggle and your eyes goggle he he can do things that very few you're talking your Michael Jordans your Tiger Woods this capacity to carry the game to a different level to do things that make you feel you're seeing something that has never been done before and obviously the World Cup is the one, I won't say failure in his career, but it's the one missing jewel of a career that has been spectacular. I think a lot of people relate to him and that rivalry with Ronaldo, people sort of found themselves, a lot of them, on Messi's side because they juxtaposed one personality against the other. And you had Ronaldo, who always seemed like an individual within a team and that never felt the way with Messi. And I think so many of us have memories of Maradona and Argentina, another iconic figure who just brought the game to a different level and the passion he brought. Messi is not the same passionate individual, but 
Anyone who watched the Copa America last year and just saw the joy and the relief that he had finally achieved something in that Argentine jersey. And I think as a legacy for the greatest player I've ever seen, I think it could almost redeem the World Cup. That is the narrative, isn't it? That's the one for this World Cup. I think so. Um, the I, I, I don't quite relate to Mbappe and Neymar in the same way. I... Obviously, Neymar's World Cup was 2014 and the stuff that happened there, he couldn't quite carry it. He's obviously a phenomenal talent. Maybe we're overcritical of him as a flaky individual when you look at his career stats, which are absolutely astonishing. But I think we're critical of him because he went to Paris. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, Messi went to Messi went to Paris as well. I know he was sort of at the end no of his, option end of his club in, in many ways, yeah. too. But You're talking about Neymar. I'm talking about Neymar. Well, yeah. I mean... Neymar does have this tendency to become a little, little bit of a diva when things are not going entirely right. Yeah, um, and we've never, we've never seen that in the same regard with Messi. Maybe it's because he has one of these stoic faces. He's, his expressions come through his football rather than through his theatrics. But I, I really warm and relate to the guy. And when I see him, you feel you're above all the grubby politics of sport. You're still seeing something beautiful when that guy is at its best. Yeah, I mean, uh, critics of Messi may point out that he's a, a tourism ambassador yeah. for Saudi Arabia as well. So, you know, he's off. But, you know, he's no clean cut hero, but know, just when he yeah. goes on the pitch, he to does me, stuff. He is, you know, to, to, to bring it back around to the, the sort of uh, uh, childlike wonder uh, uh, cliche argument. You know, he is it. Like, he is, the, he is the embodiment of, like, I fell in love with football in Mexico 86 and it was Maradona. And he's the closest I've seen to doing something like that. Different character, very different personality, but the closest person that just makes you kind of just get, you know, jump off your chair. And, and this, you know, something about uh, something, something in, in, in any sport, I suppose, but, you know, particularly in soccer, about this, the, the little guy with, with all the skills, you know, who can do it. Um, you know, it just, it just makes you, it, it, like, it is that thing that we were talking about that has been so that is the precious jewel within the heart of this thing that gets so so surrounded with all the, the commercialization and corruption that, that keeps it pure and keeps it, you know, just to imagine him lifting the, the trophy. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. There's, there's that famous essay on Roger Federer by David Foster Wallace, uh, Roger Federer's religious experience. experience. Yes. And I think there is an element of that about Messi that it does feel a football stadium that he walks into feels like a cathedral and you feel like you're blessed if you're seeing him produce potentially miracle after miracle. If you watch his highlight reel, and there's so many of them on YouTube, and you don't coming away feeling better about the day, he just has that effect, hasn't he? Yeah. He can just carry you to another place. As you were saying, boy-like wonder. You're innocent again watching Messi. Yeah. Yeah, I always think of, uh, you know, the, the brilliant uh, Irish Times uh, and, uh, writer and author, Patrick Frayne, um, you know, writing in his, his recent book, he is not a sports fan, and he made the point that I could, he, could never, he could never get into sport because, unlike art, nothing is created. And I, I often look at that and I go, <laughs> no. jump on YouTube and look at Messi and, yeah. and try to tell me that there isn't something, you know, if art is an expression of, of the, the human soul or, 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 or simply our, our existence as, as humanity, don't tell me that he doesn't express something about 
the, like the wonder of as what a it cultural is experience. Life. People talk about a Mozart symphony, and they talk about a Michelangelo Sistine Chapel. Messi has given us that sort of ca- on the canvas he paints. Yeah, his brushstrokes have just carried us to to places that, as you say, touch you down at the marrow, find the soul, and that is the essence of great art to me. Mm. Yeah, and there's been that through the generations, Pelé, Cruyff, Beckenbauer in a different way. And for me, I was seven and 86 Maradona, mm. you know, with the TVs in the poor Ireland, with the TV from Mexico, you know, the one small TV in the room and this p- color picture has been beamed into your living room and you're going, what is this world? Because it's not the world yeah. I'm living in at the moment, a seven-year-old. Just, just the most exciting. And then we got to the party and that's the, that's what back to yeah. the roots of what we're discussing for the first half hour of this, that the, the, the disconnect between the, the people who run football uh, yeah. in, in the world and then the way we feel about the game. Um, and Ronaldo is going to be at the World Cup and he's once again part of the, the sports writing this Sunday because of his um, very public divorce from Manchester United and his decision to sack himself, really. I think, I think Tommy Conlon's piece today, there's a couple of very good and interesting pieces. David Walsh... Sunset Boulevard stuff, yes. Yeah, that, that's exactly the <laughs> quote yeah. I, was, um, I was going to make for. I mean... Obviously, Ronaldo and Piers Morgan meet and you think this has to be an interview in an aircraft hangar because where can all that ego and narcissism <laughs> possibly I quite like Piers Morgan, I have to possibly say. Possibly fit. I didn't say I didn't like him, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that I don't recognise that he has quite a little self-regard. But Tommy's piece has almost has, um, as many great images as, as Ronaldo has scored hat-tricks in his career, but a one that I really, really en- enjoy. He's talking about the raging against the dying of the light and the sort of the inability to accept that the end may be coming. Um, Tommy says, of course, he is refusing point blank to to accept the dimming of the day. It's the oldest story in showbiz, or one of them anyway, the diva clinging on to the spotlight, the aging prima donna who thinks his voice is still perfect, the Sinatra who cannot resist another comeback and another one and another one. And then this, which I think is wonderful. Ronaldo has now officially entered the Norma Desmond phase of his epic career. Norma, the faded and forgotten movie star in the 1950 film Sunset Boulevard, who believes she is still a goddess of the silver screen. Your Norma Desmond, says someone, you used to be in silent pictures, you used to be big. A retort has entered cinematic history. I am big, it's the pictures that got small. And that is, as Tommy says, the Ronaldo attitude, I'm still big, it's United that got small. I think... We tend to be instantly critical of Ronaldo, though it's it's a sort of almost a default reaction to to see this guy who can't pass a mirror without looking at himself and say, "Do we really relate to him?" But I'm I, I'm taken by how difficult it must be at his stage of a career as well to accept what's coming. Brian O'Driscoll's um, recent documentary sort of chartered a lot of these players as they lose the one thing that that has set them apart, that they reach the age of the mid-30s and they're never going to be remotely as good at any at anything as they are now. Um, Gay Tillies, the great American writer, famously wrote about Joe DiMaggio and those situations and the piece was entitled The Silent Season of the Hero. After the roar, as Brian O'Driscoll called his documentary, Ronaldo was entering that world. He has always been a model professional despite the other stuff we might not like about him in his preparations and David Walsh's piece today talks about maybe the fact that Manchester United should have learned from Roy Keane and the way that divorce was handled, how messy it got, that perhaps bringing back Ronaldo in the first place wasn't a great idea. And he talks about the one thing Ronaldo will never be good at is accepting his own limitations, that that 
belief that he can be better than anybody was one of the great strengths as he climbed the ladder. But as you're coming down the other side, it becomes a liability and it becomes something that those around him find very difficult to deal with because he still pouts, he still acts like the main man, still expects to be treated like the main man. But his capacity to deliver as the main man is no longer there. However much that's unsettling Manchester United and however much Ronaldo comes across badly, internally that must be a really difficult thing for that guy. Yeah, to accept that, and he can't accept it. it yeah, seems. I think I mean I'm, I couldn't agree more. Like that, what what is it hard? There's a whole other you know um, sort of architecture of, of of you know media and PR and owning the narrative and you know profile and and all that stuff going on here. But you know at the core of it, you know for, for the individual, you know that what I suppose with Tommy Conlon's pieces is is looking at the the, the tragedy of the of the of the aging star. And, and and how it's a very well worn story. It's 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 a it's a it's a it's a great sort of you know theme of sport and uh, sport and showbiz um, down the years. What I find about the Ronaldo thing, what I find most tragic is that, and you know people have made the point that the reason that he is raging against the di- dying of the light is that very drive, um, and ego, and um, whatever that thing is within him that made him the the greatest of what he did that made him construct himself you know his body his technique his his whole mindset into this unstoppable machine the greatest goal scorer we've, we've ever seen it what was that thing that drove him you know without wanting to get into the uh the realms of amateur uh, psychology um american sports writer uh, gary gary smith yeah um sports illustrated yeah um um no, it was Wright Thompson, sorry, Wright Thompson, the, who, who, a piece in uh, ESPN about it a few years ago. And he went to Madeira and he talked to all the people who knew Ronaldo's father and, in, and the people who knew Ronaldo growing up and saw where he came from and all that. And, you know, his theory was that there was something there with the relationship with the father that, you know, that maybe Ferguson came along and that was a thing that he was always striving for. I don't know what it is, but there's something completely you know, unique about Ronaldo uh, that that drove him to to create that. I mean, we've I don't think we've ever seen anybody quite like that um, in the game. That that sort of mix of just absolutely un uh, un indestructible self belief and uh, and confidence and and and, and the, you know the accusations of arrogance and narcissism that go with it. What I find tragic is that whatever that was that drove him. It, it's still not enough no, that he not. hasn't been able to say 37 now I've done it all it's been brilliant it's been amazing you know I'm on the way in a bit here but I can still do something I can still play I can still do something but that that raw uh, want within him hasn't been filled that, that, that there's something, I, I, I think there's something Tommy... in there an absence there that that he's still striving to to fill you know and I and I think it's great that he still has it, but I think it's a little bit sad as well that what, everything, everything he's achieved. There's got to be a per- there's, there's, there's got to be a purpose beyond playing, and that doesn't seem to be but there. The, at the, the moment. psychology, the psychology of sports sometimes, and I think you've hit at something close, and maybe we're engaging in in amateur psychology, but the insecurity and the need to prove oneself that you see in so many athletes who've come from fractured families, that they're craving the love of someone who is not even there to love them anymore. And that there's a hole at the at their core, really, that they're trying to fill through performing. But no matter how much they achieve, 
no matter how many goals they score, no matter how many Ballandors are on the sideboard, they still haven't won the approval in their own mind of that lost child who was seeking something. And perhaps we're, perhaps we're overstretching there. We don't know if that's the case of Ronaldo. We don't know right. that's the case of Ronaldo, but there's something that, that has driven him to well, be... Well, it's, you know, the very poor bringing the washing machine on the on yeah. the top of the roof, the, the fact that his dad had a very difficult time in Angola, and the, the water was so dirty for his dad to drink, and so unclean that he drank beer instead. You know? Uh, and and even you talk about Pierce Morgan. He did a previous interview with Ronaldo when he when he showed Ronaldo pictures of his dad and the dad story, and Ronaldo teared up. So look, he's had he hasn't had it straightforward. Well, uh, and and nobody has. But, but I think that's the very ch- same thing that's driving and, him, that's and, and facilitating look, let's, him let's, being let's, great. Let's be you know let's not let's not indulge let's not you know indulge in that amateur psychology thing. We're just making a point that these guys are driven by something, and you would hope that something to fill it when it's gone you'd hope that they would they would get us that that whatever you know you he pursued that it that that it brought some sort of uh sense of fulfillment that you'd like to think when you get to the mountain that you'd feel fulfilled basically yeah again that um that silent season silent season of the hero profile of uh, dimaggio where marilyn monroe comes back from having entertained the troops and she turns to dimaggio then her husband and said you never heard anything like it. And DiMaggio said, oh, I did, I did. <laughs> and it was basically saying that he had this, it was gone, and it just left that hole that sometimes can't be filled. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and this, the, you know, this whole sort of, I mean, I, I, I found the, 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 the clips from the Ronaldo, Piers Morgan thing impossible to watch. For the probably for the similar reason of the Gianni Infantino FIFA stuff, because it was a construction of an alternative reality. It's that, it's this let it's this managing the message, managing the the situation thing. It's it's the whole Ronaldo thing with United has been has been built on, you know, it's 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 it just seems to be built. And I think what what Eric Ten Hag has done really well at United this season is to cut through a lot of the absolute bull. That has surrounded that club over the last few years. You know this this magical thinking about old players coming back and a nostalgia tour, for nostalgia everybody. stuff. And and Ten Hag has come in and he's literally gone. He's he's. I think I think Ronaldo started ten games, appeared in eighteen matches in all. He had no pre. He wasn't in pre season. He's only scored three goals in that in that time. Refused to come on in one of the games. Brought him back. Made him captain again. I think he's treated him with a, a hell of a lot of respect. Absolutely. I mean, it's from an absolute distance here. And, you know, that, 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 the Ronaldo thing, is that, he's, that he thinks that what he's done with Piers Morgan is, 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 is something that he needs to do at this stage of his, of his career. There's something really tragic about it. Yeah, Matt Cooper's got a good piece in the Sunday Business Post at the back of it on Ronaldo and United and the whole kind of sports and business aspect of it. I'll just quote here. It seems that MUFC executives are gambling on intangible returns. Ronaldo's the most followed person on Instagram with 340 million followers, a figure that brings the value of the club versus player brand into the equation. MUFC may have been gambling on the draw of Ronaldo would bring many more international fans to the club who'd buy tickets and merchandise at a later date. After all, the club cited its social media reach in defending the value of its commercial deals during COVID. I think there will be a suitor for Ronaldo. Somebody will eventually snap him up and he'll end up somewhere. But it, uh, the legacy and the... the uh, you wonder in 10 years' time what United fans will think of him. But once again, people have short memories, so I'm sure he'll be welcome back to Old Trafford. we got to take a break. we got rugby to talk about, GA to talk about, horse racing to talk about with uh, Tommy Martin and Roy Curtis on the Sunday Paper Review here on Off The Ball on News Talk after this. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. 
The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. And you're welcome back to Off The Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until 7 with the Sunday Paper Review with Tommy Martin of Virgin Media and the Sunday World Sports writer Roy Curtis listening on your radio across News Talk across the country. You can also watch us on the digital and social channels on the OTB Sports app, YouTube, Facebook and on Twitter. Just to update you folks on some scores and uh, sports news from the world. Uh, great stuff for Rory McIlroy, world number one. Uh, PGA Tour winner of the FedEx Cup and now the winner of the European Tour title well it's the DP World Tour now isn't it uh, 16 under par 4th place behind John Ram, the winner of the Tour Championship there in Dubai but Rory McIlroy wins that Varden Trophy and has won effectively the, quick, the clean sweep of, uh, of Tours this year because he's not on live uh, and uh, Rory the only thing he's really missing from the locker this year of course is a major but well done to Rory and Yona Maguire is tied for the lead head of the final round of that Tour Championship in Florida on the LPGA Tour Punchestown at the Florida Pearl Novice Chase Darren's Hope a 20-1 to 1 outsider won that uh, for Danny Mullins and also the Morgana Hurdle the big race of the day won by Stateman 9-4 to 4 on favours William Mullins and Paul Townend combining for that one match for Stappen the world champion leading the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix uh, Ding Junhui two frames to nil up on Mark Allen in the Connacht Club football semi-final Mike Cullen of Galway six point strokes 10 of Roscommon five at Chim Stadium at the moment in the Munster Hurling Club uh, semi-final uh, Ballier of Clare 110 St Finbar's 12 points is the latest score from Ennis in the Ulster Club semi-final Portaferry of Down 5 points Loch Neal 12 and in the Galway final in Hurling Lockray 12 points St Thomas's 11 is the latest score from Pierce Stadium in the rugby it's France 28 Japan 17 let's move to rugby then and uh, Tommy Ireland Australia you were there on duty I heard you doing the interviews afterwards cold night certainly was yeah. a warm night for Ireland's just thawing I can't believe giving Joe Malloy the day off he was so tucked up nicely in the studio with uh, a cup of tea and Rob Carney for company um, yeah it was funny the, the papers today there's a there's a, rate, there's a little variation here we've got Neil Francis is quite uh, unimpressed um, Brendan Fanning maybe in the Sunday Independent um, is, is a bit more positive and, and Bernard Jackman as well I think um, Shane McGrath then in the mail it talks about it that, that how it's, it sums up the bottom line is we are without Johnny we Johnny Sexton we are in trouble and I kind of think they're all sort of right and that's the way I kind of felt after the game I was like well that was objectively a load of crap as a, as a, as a viewing spectacle but is it a good thing for Ireland that they do, is that old thing that they dug out, dug out the win in the circumstances or do you have to look back and say actually teams have found Ireland out now and know how to stop the, the type, type of game that they want to play under Farrell and is it you know, is, is there real questions about them? Um, I thought Farrell's demeanour afterwards was interesting because I interviewed him after the Fiji game and he was, you know, he, I thought he might be a bit, in that after that game, going, you know what, it was job done, let's move on type. But he was very scathing about the team, very critical of their attitude, their execution and their their, their just their general approach to the game. Whereas last night, I kind of felt he, w- he was taking the take, uh, the tack that... Um, Brendan Fanning, maybe the key line in his piece uh, in the Sunday Indo is this narky engrossing contest added another layer to Ireland's thick skin, winning by a nose, having made an art form out of defending for far more time than had been budgeted for in advance is good for mental strength. And then uh, Bernard Jackman there, his piece focuses a lot on Jack Crowley and how it's good to get him to see him actually, you know, step in and maybe not do anything amazing, but, you know, uh, filled the shirt he says we may need to have five players for every position uh, uh, sorry obviously referring to Ross Byrne coming in and, and nailing that kick as well we may need to have five players for every position by the time we hit the knockout stages of the World Cup Byrne can be relied upon the, this Irish team go into 2023 number one in the world rankings and can be relied upon too 
On the other hand, Neil Francis, um, you know, the, the headline there, please, uh, the Sunday Times piece is, Ireland may be ranked number one in the world, but this poor quality and disjointed performance has only proved that they are anything but. So percolate that down and see which side of the fence you fall under. I think there is no disputing Ireland's 2022 body of work as a standalone unit is deeply impressive. But the spectre of a similar standout 2018 turning into 2019's World Cup flop casts a nagging doubt over everything we see at the moment. I think Ireland's back catalogue of disappointments and disasters at the World Cup is the bottom line. Johnny Sexton has typically being very honest about this when asked about the world number one rating said it really doesn't matter that it's about delivering next year um, I think Ireland without Sexton what we're really really discovering for however they dug out the game last night I think Neil Francis sort of nails it with one line where he says the loss of Sexton's leadership above everything else was the main reason Ireland were so bad his influence and his authority are vital when it comes to these games, and you could see it particularly in the backfield. Ireland's rhythm and flow was completely gone, and the number of mistakes that Ireland made when their conscience is sitting in the stands tells you all you need to know about Ireland's chances. I don't know, maybe the Roy Keane situation with the World Cup in 2002 bears comparison, but our whole campaign seems to hang around the well-being of Johnny Sexton which for all the brilliance of players like Josh van der Fleer, I thought Quaylen Doris was really, really good last night. Gary Ringrow is an outstanding player. We are still going to the World Cup, a war of attrition as the game gets ever more physical, where you're looking at seven games in seven weeks if you want to reach the mountaintop, where our out half will be relentlessly targeted and our fate hinges so much on this guy, this magnificent footballer, this extraordinary competitor, this setter of standards. But this guy around whom everything hangs. Yes, we may have five out halves now, but the chasm between Johnny and the rest is immense. Yeah, Shane McGrath's uh, line, you know, um, on, on that subject, like that's his, his takeaway as well in the mail. Uh, Ireland's sexton dependency is acute and whether you believe that reliance on a 37-year-old is misguided or dictated by a rare blazing talent, it is now the overwhelming feature of this invigorating Irish side. So <laughs> I think it's a good, it's, it's a good line because it's you say they're a good team but their overwhelming feature as Roy says is the presence of, of that guy that Neil Francis calls the conscience uh, of the team and you're kind of watching that and I know rugby is a very technical game there's loads of little things going on that the likes of me don't see and don't understand but there is some kind of spiritual mm. presence that, that Ireland he, that you can sort of feel when he's on the pitch w with Ireland that they're just uh, you know they just feel like a, a you know a lot more coherent a lot more just look like a lot more serious team but like the bottom line is and I think it, well, I think maybe why Farrell was, was kind of generally you know, he kind of knows that at some stage something's going to happen. And that game last night felt like one of those, like like a World Cup semi-final. Like we've seen them loads of them over the years. What was it, you know, New Zealand beating Wales 8-7 mm. in, in 2011 or different games like that down the years where it's it's nothing like what you expect. It's absolutely, it's a real dogfight. The referee gets involved and there's, what was, what was it, uh, 12 penalties aside last night. It was on forever. It's... And then there's, there's just that moment then, you know, a couple of moments then in the last 20 minutes that decided and 
you know, the try, uh, the, the, the try obviously that Aki scored and Byrne nailed in his kick. A real worry, I think, a real worrying moment though, from an Irish point of view, was, you know, our, our Irish or certainly Leinster's bogeyman, Will Skelton, Barland. He was like Jonah Lomu. Barland through, uh, you know, that, that Irish defensive line, like, like 10 pin bowling. And, uh, you know, people might, when this, when they start sifting through over the months ahead, you know, the, the, the things you'll take away and scrolling through the footage, they'll look at that and go, we don't like big men running at us. Yeah, well, Andy Farrell had the ringside seat in 2018 because he was assisting Joe Schmidt. So surely he'll have learned, you'd think that for the next year and the, the, whatever we need to refine. There's, there's certain things you can learn, but there's certain things that you also can't necessarily cure if there are bigger men and more powerful men capable yeah. of doing something. I, I think Ireland are also in some ways a victim of their ongoing excellence. I, I covered the Irish rugby team for years. I remember being in Twickenham nearly 30 years ago when Simon Gagan got that wonderful try. Yeah. And we celebrated like we'd won the World Cup because we had lived on scraps of success yeah. at that stage. I mean, We this, were the wooden spoon team. We, the exactly. And, and perennial failures, really. And sort of Gagan stood out as this guy who could swashbuckle and deliver end product and who demanded higher standards. Now we have a culture of excellence in Irish rugby where Munster and Leinster's European success um, where grand slams have been achieved. And I mean, if someone said 15, 20 years ago that Ireland would go to New Zealand, win a series, uh, beat South Africa and Australia at home and l- reach the world number one rankings and it doesn't flatter them, you would sort of think they're half crazy. But the consequence of them reaching that level is that we now really want them to deliver on all that potential at the only tournament that matters. And when there are so few serious rugby nations and when Ireland have never advanced beyond the quarterfinals. It is something that you can't ignore and until that bogey is laid to rest it will always be a doubt in the build-up, I think. And, and the other the other consequence of, the, of that world number one status and it's something that, as you say, uh, John, Farrell's memory and, and the, the folk memory of within the squad of what happened uh, under Joel in 2019 is that sense of always having to be changing and always improving. I think that's something that they do say that they're, they are, you know, it is, again, it's, it's another line that gets trotted out, you know, uh, post-match interview cliches 101, but that to ha- always have the sense of trying to, to be, be constantly in, uh, in evolution, whereas obviously what happened is every nose under Joe was we, we reached a formula, we got found out, and then it was, there was nothing left, and it, 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 you know, it, it just turned to dust in our fingers. What they're obviously trying to do is to keep evolving, keep changing, keep keep sort of the, the competition for places strong. And and but the consequence of being world number one is that you get analysed, you get picked apart. And what we've seen in this autumn series with Ireland is teams have come and gone and, and come and looked at Ireland and said, What did they like to do? What did they do out in New Zealand in the summer? They played uh, heads up, quick rugby, recycle the ball quickly, get it going, get get it get it moving, fast starts in games. Um, you know, uh, getting um, Jameson Gibson Park whipping that ball out of the base of the ruck, getting getting going. What Springboks did, what Fiji did, what Australia did was slow it down, give away penalties, get them out of their rhythm, disrupt them, get them into a bit of a stodge fest. And maybe the reason why he's smiling at the end of it is kind of going, "Fine, I'm glad they came at us now with that. Let's go again." Let's see. Let's let's react. It was to what a bit. Like, it was a bit like Leinster La Rochelle. Leinster nearly held on, but didn't. Mm. We were the same boat. Well, and uh, you know, if if Leinster had won, if we lost, you know, maybe maybe it is something that they 
they are hanging on and the place that they're in now that when you build up reserves of confidence, you can call on those, that belief. It was a mark of the Dublin footballers, the way they won so many games down the stretch where they had been behind, where there was never a sense of panic, where there was a conviction within the squad. We've been through this before. We know how to get to the escape hatch. And they did. And I think it says something that we're sort of being slightly critical in some ways of Ireland after a November where they've beaten the world champions, beaten Australia. Look what happened to Wales last night, losing to Georgia in terms of, if you want to talk in relative terms about where teams are. Ireland, you would have to say, go to a World Cup. I know there's the Six Nations in between. As a real live European contender, the question is whether they can deliver in a tournament and whether they can sustain... Three big wins. It's hard to win three big times. Quarterfinal, semi-final, finally. Might win one of them, but win the three of them. Like, you have to be critical and you have to acknowledge, like Neil Francis says, you know, look, given the quality of some of the Australian sides we've seen over the decades, if they had anyone with a little bit of imagination and courage to work the ball out of the tackle, they could have scored two or three against Ireland in in that first half. Like, Australia had 64% territory, something similar, possession that first half. There was a stage, I think, up to the half hour mark, Ireland had spent something like 18 seconds in the Aussie 22. And I think we had a spell down towards the end of the half where Ireland nearly scored a try that, that, that bumped that up a bit. But it was, you know, that was that was where you kind of look and kind of go, a better team would, would have put Ireland away last night. And, you know. There are, there are good news stories. James Ryan went through a difficult year or 18 months after a really meteoric start to his career. He looks completely back to his best our back row looks rock solid you've you've had improvements in depth back row won the game listen I, I thought it did I, I, you could you could make the claims for van der Fleer who is just an athletic phenomenon and delivers game in and game out and Quaylen Doris um, to me was man of the match last night and he just impacts a game in so many different ways I think a concern is clearly what happened to the development team where a lot of guys who perhaps we were hopeful could push the main guys they were blown away and we've gone to previous World Cups and when those injuries invariably happen as they did catastrophically um, a couple of World Cups ago with Paul Connell Paul O'Connell leading the charge of the injured you'd wonder can we sustain it over that brute physicality when we get to the knockout stages of game after game that just asks questions physically about players? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Brendan Fanning said in the Sunday Independent, uh, players trying to get the coach's attention, Ronan Callagher, Ian Henderson, James Lowe, Jacob Stockdale, James Hume, Jordan Larmer and Kieran Frawley. So we do have depth, but I, I think it's the white heat of battle and that's why Ross Burns' kick was so so heartening to see Listen, that go I, over. I'll come back to it. I, have, I don't have an iota of... The, the knowledge rugby of the Ireland the coaching team but to me having a steady Eddie who can stick a oh, yeah. <laughs> stick the ball between the posts in, in the like that's what everybody says about Ross Byrne the reason he's a key man Leinster when Johnny's away and plays so many games is because he does he gets the job done and you know he looks like an out half he's got a side parting he was handsome without <laughs> being threateningly so Kicks the ball straight. Unlike yourself, Tommy, it has to say. <laughs> you know, he just, I just think, like, if he's our number five scrum half or uh, out half, which he, which he was in the pecking order, because Frawley, Crowley, Carberry, Sexton were all ahead of him, then that, that was a positive out of last night. Now, Tommy Martin of Donegal, give your ode to Michael Murphy here. Oh, well, it's, I, I, I should be dressed in black here with a, a widow's shawl uh, around <laughs> my... Uh, Around me after the uh, after the, the 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 desperately sad news, I did feel like when I heard the news, I was actually I was 
picking the young lad up from training and I turned on the radio and the lads on whatever night it was a Wednesday night were discussing it on here and I, I t like talk about a gut punch like it was just it just had that real sense of you know I d like I don't it's 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 only sport and there's terrible things going on in the world but I just felt really sad about it about Michael Murphy's uh, retirement um just an icon I iconic just a hero just a pure hero He's one of the few people, my, people ask me, you know, oh, have you interviewed this person and you've met this person and, you know, who do you, who do you meet and do you ever feel a bit overawed? He's, he's one of the few people I, I'm, I've met that I, f I feel have a real presence about them, like that I've, I, I've felt, maybe it's just because I'm a Donegal person and he's one, our greatest player and, it's a per you know, that, that sort of thing. But I felt he's just got this unbelievable presence uh, about him that you, I would feel nearly overawed in, in his company and he's not allowed talkative boister uh, brash character at all very self-contained very you know, quietly spoken just one of these people when you know when when he talks you listen um and i just i felt sad because i had it in my head and i think a lot of Donegal people had had it that what would happen was we'd have these wilderness years of you know murphy winning the all-ireland and then climbing the mountain and then slipping back down and in around midfield, doing all that donkey work, chasing what's his name, Rogers from Derry, you know, in the last minute of the Ulster final, and and you know, doing all that stuff that we kind of think, why is he, why is he having to do that? That somebody will come in and say, Michael, you're in there, full forward, the last couple of years of your career, and it would be an Indian summer, and it would be beautiful, and you know, it would be amazing because the younger lads out the field would would be matured and would be able to carry it, and he wouldn't have to do everything. And it's, it's not going to happen. And I feel really sad about that. Um, and I feel, but I feel grateful for everything he's done um, for the county. I Beyond even on the field, just his presence in the county and the GA scene as a, as a figurehead. It's just as a, as, a, as a Dublin fan, and even during Dublin's great periods of dominance, there were very few individuals that you really worried when they were coming to town and thought these guys could do, this guy could do damage. Murphy, you very rarely get a guy with such phenomenal natural talent, who's also a huge physical presence and who carries this natural gravitas because of the way he carries him, carries himself. He was robust on the field. He didn't shirk any battles. He could go right to the edge like James McCarthy is probably my favourite footballer and very similar in that regard. Then he'd produce these scores from a different planet. He did whatever was required, his versatility, the way he reimagined himself over his career from the full forward who killed Mayo in 2012 in, in a couple of minutes to a midfield link man par excellence to a guy, as you say, back with Brendan Rodgers. Um, but very few guys almost are the team when you think of it's a team of a certain era. And Michael Murphy and Donny Gall, one went with the other and you just thought he was the the torch, the beacon, the person who brought light and happiness to a hell of a lot of people. And I, I think those summer campaigns and the effect they have on communities, we saw Donegal with the tragedy in Chris Law, how a summer of sustained excellence, how a team rising up to achieve something can can enlarge and enrich people's lives and take them to a better place. And I think... Michael Murphy's legacy, Donegal have only ever won two All-Irelands and the 2012 one was Michael Murphy inspired and he made Donegal people as happy as Donegal people could be. And it's important to note about that, um, Roy, if you go back into uh, and look at J Jim McGuinness's 
book about about coming in at the you know the tail end of 2010-2011 and getting the players taking them away these players who had been beaten and, and bruised and bedraggled they were the joke of the the joke of the country and having a, a, a day where they wrote down what they thought was wrong wrote that wrote down their ambitions and then Jim basically coming up with a charter a basically a, a game a plan that they all had to sign up to and it involved you know everything that involved the commitment that it involved it w was laid out that you would have to basically put, give your life to this and he says any man who doesn't want to be part of this you're completely fine to to head off you nobody hold that against you because this is going to take this is going to take over your lives but anybody who wants to commit to this get up and sign here this first man he said out of his chair the first man was murphy and like that that's that's where teams are made because every saw him go and he was when your leader and your best player signed 21 up. at the time 20 and and he was he was appointed captain and they all followed and they followed him all the way to the steps of the Hogan stand. He was 21, but he was never 21. He no, was, he was just he was, one of those. Yeah, he was, he was born a leader um, and you just knew that he'd get the best out of himself almost every game he played. Very few players deliver with that consistency. And even when Donegal were going through difficult periods, he just rose up. He just was one of the great players that we've ever seen. The, uh, just to bring it back to the papers then, um, Michael Foley's piece in the Sunday Times kind of does an interesting thing because I think there was a statement put out and then um, Michael Murphy did an interview with Alan Foley from the Donegal Democrat, which he talked about his reasons and, and talked it out and, and, then, and then said about how he was, you know, he would be sure that he'd contribute uh, to Donegal in another way in the future and what it meant to the county. And, and and to me, it's interesting that like uh, so. Michael Foley obviously got in touch with Alan Foley. Um, no relation, I don't think. No. Uh, um, to you know, see how it came about, and he says the summons from Michael Murphy pinged on Alan Foley's phone last Wednesday out of nowhere. Come to the college and Letter Kenny, uh, where uh, um, uh, Murphy works as a, as a head of sports there. Um, and he's wondering what is this about? Something to do with the Sigerson Cup or some other story? Uh, probably. What else could it be? Just to, just underline the shock factor of it. Uh, and he sits down with him in his office and he just says, so I'm retiring. <laughs> and that was it. And he said, why, well, he was kind of wondering why he was here. He says, well, the statement's already done, but he wanted to obviously do an interview with somebody he trusted to get it out there. But I think what that shows is that he was obviously acutely aware of his own stature within the county, that he needed to, to spell it out. He probably needed to put it out there that it wasn't a reflection on the new management team. That you know to to make that bit clear and you know to to maybe ask. You know, he, he, so he was obviously aware of, of the the import and the scale of the story within the county and, and what it meant that he had to do more than just you know put out the, the basic statement. Um, so look, that's that's uh, that's one piece on it, and and you know it, yeah, it, it you know maybe touches on some of the other themes that we've talked about as well. Yeah, and also there's a piece in the uh, Mail with Anthony Malloy, the only other person to lift the Sam McGuire Cup in a Donegal jersey, and speaking about Michael Murphy and you know paying tribute to him and. Really, really funny about the back of the time in 1992, kind of this one anecdote I really loved about the Sam Maguire Cup and he was given six months off by the uh, ESB at the time where he was working one particular week. The Cup had to be up in Derry at 7 o'clock in the evening and 11 o'clock that same night had to be in Navan at a Donegal Association dance. It was terrible winter weather. There was uh, black ice in the road. We didn't get there until 1 o'clock in the morning. Big crowd was waiting for us there. We were then until 4 in the morning. The following day, myself and Martin McGee jumped on a flight to Chicago. We did four cities in six days. That was the kind of uh, week and the madness we were living in at the time. So... Uh, 
times have changed. Uh, what are we going to just maybe uh, before we wrap up, Roy and Tommy, point our, our listeners to in terms of anything we haven't touched upon there? Is, or have we got everything done? Well, I think there was um, there was a really interesting game in the Leinster Club semi final last night. Um, the Downs yeah. reaching their first Leinster final for 50 years, a small Westmead club, a cracking game actually against Rathout. And it shows that these club games can still bring something magical. I mean, I know we have. A real heavyweight clash today in the um, in the hurling between Ballygunner and um, and Napurshik. But in the silent season of the GAA, in terms of county stuff, it was still lovely to to tune in to a, a wet and sparsely attended Crow Park and see a game that really touched the cockles. Yeah. And Tommy? Um, just to work, we'll come back to the World Cup, but from the Irish uh, point of view, there's just a story about uh, uh, Richie uh, Partridge, who uh, is, I think it's well known now, went into physiotherapy, for, um, was a, a, one of a very highly rated young player at Liverpool and terrible knee injuries. So he's, he's one of the Irish links there. I think himself, Chris Hewton, uh, is obviously in with the Ghana uh, setup. So Richie Partridge is the, the physio for the host nation, Qatar. So. We might see him running onto the pitch with the with the magic sponge. Worth uh, checking out Philip Quinn as well on uh, Ireland Malta the night. Dan McDonnell in the uh, papers, the Mail and the Sunday Independent. And John Brennan, uh, Ireland don't have the quality players to play the way Stephen Kenny wants. Uh, discussion on Ireland Malta, which kicks off at 7 o'clock this evening. Roy Curtis and Tommy Martin, your legends and gents for coming in. Who's going to win the World Cup? Brazil. Argentina. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the casting vote. I'm going to go for Brazil. So sorry, Tommy. Enjoy the rest of your day, lads. Chat soon. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.